0: All right, we're in Romans chapter 5. The book of Romans, as you know by now, was written to give a systematic explanation of what it means to be a Christian. What is the Christian faith? And the Apostle Paul, from the ground up, builds um, an explanation uh, that we might fully understand. And thus far, he has brought us from... The reality that all human beings, male, female, regardless of nationality, background, upbringing, behavior, morality, uh, all human beings have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there is none righteous, there's not one, that uh, can meet God's standard of holiness and therefore earn heaven in and of themselves. And Paul has brought us from that place of understanding that none are righteous to the truth that we are saved not by what we do, but by grace through faith in what Jesus Christ paid for and accomplished on the cross by living a righteous life and then dying a sinner's death, and thereby releasing in that death, releasing a gift of eternal life for the taking. And then Paul has explained this very clearly to us, that our admission into heaven will not be based upon how good we were, it will be based upon what we did with that gift. Did we receive what Jesus provided on the cross as our entrance, our token to get into heaven, to present before God and say, not what I have done, but what you have done through your son, that's what I bring to you. And that is the only acceptable means, and God accepts it. And so salvation, a gift, were justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul has brought us to that place. And now as we come to chapter 5, what he's explaining to us now, uh, what are some of the benefits uh, of this relationship that we now have with God? What are uh, the advantages that we now have in our earthly human lives uh, now that we have been saved? We're on the right side of God's favor. And he began by telling us that we have peace with God, probably the most priceless and treasured thing a human being can have to lay their head on their pillow at night and to not wonder what's going to happen to me when I die. Or is God pleased with me? Or who is God? Or where did I come from? But to be able to rest your head and know inside that those issues are settled and that I have peace with God. He says also that we have access to God, that he's not somewhere distant, far off. He's not too busy. His backlog of emails isn't so full that, that he, he has no time to, to, to be concerned with me. But I have access to God anytime like a son does to a father. And so that's part of this relationship. It's part of the covenant is that I can go to God... Any time, in any condition, and I have an audience with God, and not just an audience, but there 's grace to be received and grace to be given and then he said also, the other thing that we have is we have a completely different perspective now concerning the trials, the tribulations, the difficulties, the pain that comes into our lives, because whereas in the past, those things never made sense and they were always bad and to be avoided. Now, in the context of his sovereign fathering shepherding hand, those things now are are understood to be the benefit. Those things are refining us. They're changing us. They're working something in us and through us. And God is orchestrating and he's using the trials and tribulations of our lives to produce good outcomes. And so we glory in tribulations. And so that's kind of where we, we went as far as in, in looking at these things. And he kind of finishes his... Um, beginnings here uh, by by kind of giving conclusion concerning what these tribulations and trials produce in our lives. And so he says in verse 5, he says that hope does not make us ashamed because, and here's the reason, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. And so here he concludes with two, two more things that God has given to us now that we are right in Christ. And the first of, that he mentions here is that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Now, the love of God, this is the, the first time that the love of God is mentioned in the book of Romans. And the love of God speaks of a love that is separate from all other loves. It's a love that is unconditional, meaning that it's not, it's not, there's no expectations that are attached to it, no strings attached to it. It's not, uh, you can't reciprocate for it. There's nothing that you can do to earn it or build upon it. It's love by choice. God said to the children of Israel in the Old Testament that God did not love you because you were more in number or because you were greater than any of the other nations. But God loved you because he loved you. That's the reason. (laughs) And that's what this love is. It's a love that is transcendent to any human love or earthly uh, application of love that we could ever have or express or meditate or contemplate. It's the love of God. And what he says concerning this love is he says that this love is now shed abroad in our hearts. Now, just imagine like standing under a fountain where... You know, the the, the direct hit of the fountain is hitting you, but then it's not only hitting you, but it's splashing all around you and the residual spill off from this flood is just soaking everything up. And that's kind of the picture here when it talks about the love being shed abroad, that it's just spreading out. It's hitting and it's spreading from where it started. Now, it's connected to the trials and the tribulations that we face. And you say, well, what's the relationship between trials and tribulations and the love of God being shed abroad in my heart? And here's, here's how, what it is. is that when I go through the trials and the tribulations of my life, the various sufferings, the difficulties, the pain, and whatever arena, as I experience God in those sufferings, as he meets me in them, or as he works in my life through them and changes things around, and I see the outcome on the other side of those trials, it results in a surrender, wherein I say, oh Lord, I didn't like it, I didn't choose it, I didn't want it, but I see what you did in it, and I'm thankful for it, And now I trust you, Lord, that you are for me, even in the midst of my pain and my trials and my difficulty. And what's the result of that? Is that his love reaches to a deeper part of my life than I had ever known it previously. Lord, I didn't know you were involved in this this, the way that you were, but now I see it and I trust you more. Lord, I give you more of my love back. When the disciples were in the ship with Jesus and there was a storm, and Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat, His presence was withdrawn. It seemed as though he was disengaged from the trial that the disciples were facing. And the water was filling the boat, and it was at danger of being capsized. And finally, they were able to wake Jesus, and they said, Lord, don't you care that we're dying in the middle of this storm and this trial? And Jesus looked up at them, not looking at the storm at all, and just said, you of little faith. And he stood up, and he rebuked. The wind and the storm, and he caused there to be a perfect, peaceful calm in an instant. The trial was over. And it says that the disciples looked at him, and it says that they wondered and they marveled, realizing that he was sovereign even over the wind, the rains, and the storm. They worshipped him. So what happened is that the storm that they were facing, though it was real, the fear was real, the feeling was real, the pain was real, the threat was real. Yet in the midst of it, they learned something about Jesus that they had never known previously. Wow, he's sovereign even over the elements. They didn't know that before. And so the trial caused them to know him in a way that they hadn't previously, and so it worked for their good. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And so God uses the trials and the difficulties and the pain to bring us to the place where we know him, trust him, and love him more than we had previously. And then he says that the agent whereby the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts is the Holy Ghost. That's how he concludes at the end of verse 5. He said, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. Now again, this is the first mention of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. And he, and I say he because he's a he and not a net, he will become a key player in things moving forward as we talk about the Christian life, the person of the Holy Spirit and his role in our lives. And what Paul is telling us here is that one of the advantages, one of the birthrights, blessings and benefits of every believer is that we have the Holy Spirit, not just available to us, but actually living inside of us. Because if the Holy Ghost is being shed abroad in our hearts, I'm sorry, if the love of God is being shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, then the Holy Ghost has to be inside shedding the love abroad in our hearts. Jesus told his disciples, he said, If I go away, meaning go to the cross, he said, I will give you another helper that he will abide with you even forever. When Jesus said another helper, He was speaking of the Holy Spirit. John tells us that very clearly. Whom they which would believe on Jesus would receive. Now, the word helper means literally a helper of the same kind. What does that mean? The same kind as what? The same kind as Jesus was. In other words, you're going to have a helper the same as what it's like to have me here. And Jesus said, he took it a step further, and he said, it is absolutely necessary that I go away so that the helper can come. You say, well, no, 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 no. I don't think that would be necessary. (laughs) I would rather have you here physically with me. (laughs) You know, that, that seems more necessary to me. You've got it backwards. And Jesus would say, no, no, no. And here's why. Because as long as Jesus was physically present here on earth, the best and most he could ever be is an external companion, guide, and help. But if the Holy Spirit comes, his work is not an external work, but rather his work is an internal work. And therefore, the work that God can do in our lives through the Holy Spirit is exponentially greater than the work that could be done through a physically present Jesus here on earth. Because he would always be outside of us. Jesus said, when the helper comes, he will be in you. And so the Holy Spirit was given and the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us. And so his work and his role is different than that of Jesus who was here in the flesh. The spirit is God. He is as much God as Jesus and the father, but he is invisible in essence and he lives in us. And his role, the Holy Spirit's role in our lives is first of all to bring conviction. Now, If you're a believer here, you know exactly what I mean by that. That very stinging voice and prodding that we feel when we're walking outside of what God wants for us and what's in us. He brings conviction to show us what is right and what is wrong. He also reveals to us truth of God. He brings revelation to us. Now, he brings all kinds of revelation. He reveals the word. We read the word of God and we understand it because the Holy Spirit gives, gives sense to it and he helps us to understand it. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, when you read the Bible and, and you see something that maybe you've read a hundred times before, but you read it this time and all of a sudden it's open to you in an amazing way. The Bible, you know, the, the, the way that God can just uh, open the word. You know, I'm doing the one-year Bible, and uh, a couple of days ago, it had me in Leviticus. It's got me in a different part of the Bible each day, and, you know, that part of the Old Testament, I was in Leviticus, and, you know, it's kind of like, oh, Leviticus, you know, and I was reading in Leviticus, and it was talking about the, uh, the burnt offering, and it says that the, the priest will make an atonement for himself and for the people, and he'll take the, the, the bull, the burnt offering. And he'll take the blood of the burnt offering, and he'll take some of it, and he'll walk into the temple, and he and it says these words, it says, and if the entire congregation of Israel sin against God, including the priest, then he will take some, or ignorantly, it says if they sin ignorantly against God, then he'll take of the blood, and he'll scatter it abroad in the temple. That's the phrasing that it uses. And I just stopped for one minute and it brought my mind immediately to the episode where they brought Jesus, who is the burnt offering. He, he is what the burnt offering represented. And they took Jesus into the temple and they condemned him and they nailed him to a cross. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he looked at the congregation, the entire nation, and he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The whole congregation of Israel sinned in ignorance. And then, here's the amazing thing. After Jesus died, it says that Judas Iscariot took the money, the 30 pieces of silver whereby he you know, betrayed Jesus for, and he brought them into the temple. And he said, I don't want this money. It's the money, the, the blood of, he said, it's the blood of an innocent man. And they said, well, we don't want it. It's blood money. See thou to it. And it says that he scattered it abroad in the temple. The blood money was scattered. And the Lord just opened that to my under as I read Leviticus chapter 3 about the burnt offering. And I sat there with chills like, Lord, only you, only you. Could, could put this so clear, to, to be able to foretell what would happen and then to bring it to pass in such an amazing way. The, the Holy Spirit brings revelation of the Word of God in our lives. That's the Lord. When you see things like that, when you hear things like that, it's the Lord that's bringing that revelation through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's role in our lives to transform us. He's the one that gives us power to change on the inside. Rules, regulations, covenants, promises that we make to ourselves, commitments, all of those things can temporarily change our behavior and they bear witness to our will, what we want. But those things do not have power to change us on the inside. All they can do is maybe give us something to strive after or try to do but they can't change our nature on the inside. The Holy Spirit, when he comes into our life, he changes us on the inside and he changes our desires. He rewires the way we think and the way we live and he rewires our values and our priorities and he sets things in order the way that we're supposed to be so that when our behavior changes, it changes because we're changed, not because we're trying to change it through our actions on the outside. And so the Holy Spirit's role, part of it in our life is the transformation. Amazingly, that happens, isn't it? It's amazing. Now, sometimes we wish it would happen faster, right? And sometimes we're waiting years for him to change things that we we hate about ourselves. But then there's things that he changes like a light switch. Like they just flip and it's changed. Old desires are gone. Addictions, they're just broken. Some things, and, and we can't figure out why and his schedule on things, but it's the Holy Spirit that transforms us on the inside. He's also our teacher, he's our enabler, and he is our leader. He's the one that leads our life. And the Holy Spirit is, and he is to be, a supernatural element that is with us all the time. There is, There should be, and I hope there is a supernatural element in yours and my Christianity on a, on a constant basis that the Holy Spirit is showing up. This Wednesday uh, just a couple of days ago, again, I was doing my one year thing and I was in Proverbs on Wednesday. And I was in Proverbs chapter 11 and the Lord brought me, I I came to a verse and when I hit that verse, it it caught my attention. I thought about it for a minute and it immediately brought to mind another verse in Isaiah and that brought another verse you know, thing from the New Testament. It's just a couple strings of verses kind of quickly. You know how your mind works fast. And as soon as I finished the thought, I I thought to myself, you know, that's a really good, um, that's a very good meditation for a memorial service. I'm going to write it down. So I took my notebook and I just jotted down the string of scriptures and I circled it and I wrote memorial service near it in case I, I need a memorial service message. And as soon as I finished writing that, it struck me, someone's going to die. Like God, why is God giving me a message for a memorial service you know like that you know and so and so but I, my wife was sitting right there, but I didn't tell her because I didn't want her to like you know how women you know can can th- it's going to be my kids, you know what I mean, or something so so I didn't tell her, you know, which was another stroke of holy Spirit genius, you know, to keep your mouth shut <laughs> you know. <laughs> But then I came here, it's Wednesday morning, so I'm preparing for Wednesday night and I'm sitting in um, the sound booth and uh, Lisa, the church secretary, she walks in and she comes walking up the middle aisle, you know, and so as she's walking up the middle aisle, I just looked up and I said, who died? And she stopped dead in her tracks and she was startled, she put her hand over her mouth. She goes, how did you know? And I said, the Lord told me. (laughs) And, And she goes, that's exactly why I'm in here she said, so-and-so died, so-and-so's mother died, and they called the church, and they asked if you can do the memorial service, (laughs) and I was like, yeah, I guess, I can't, how do I say no, you know, like, let me, you know, but, and, and, and I just, she left, and I just sat there for a minute, and I just was thinking, and, and I was thinking, Lord, you know, you didn't have to do that, like, you could have, you, I mean, he, he could have just let that happen without preparing me for it ahead of time. I didn't need that. You know, it's not like it was that day or that night that I had to do it, but he did it. And, and I think, and and I'm not better than anyone else. I'm not more holy. I'm, it's not like I I don't have a connection to God that someone else doesn't have. And he doesn't do that every day. It's not like I walk around knowing everything that's going to happen, you know, but. I think there's supposed to be a supernatural element in this Christian life that we live, you know it's supernaturally natural it's not the it's not for boasting it's not for it's just he's with us, and we should know that we should be aware of it and it's the Holy Spirit's role in our lives it's the birthright of the Christian to walk in the spirit, and that these things should be happening from you know I'm not saying that we're, we're to be walking on water every day and raising the dead, but we should be aware of God's presence with us. On things, you know. So the Holy Spirit brings the supernatural into the Christian life. And so Paul kind of explains to us these are things that are real for the Christian peace with God, access to God, the right perspective and help in tribulation, the expansion of the love of God in our hearts, and a walk in the Holy Spirit. And these things are important to us. Well, Paul anticipates now the next question. That his audience would have. And that question is, is very simply the question of why? Why? Why would God give his son to be the ransom and the payment for my sin? Why would God take something of the highest value to him that is absolutely pure and holy and trade it and give it in exchange for me, who am rebellious, sinful, <laughs> and, 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 and lost, and I've got no right to that. Why would he do it? What's his motive? And so Paul tells us that in verse 6 all the way up through verse 11. He says, for when we were without strength. Now, what does that mean that we were without strength? It means that we were without the ability to save ourselves. We did not have strength to reach God or produce the kind of life that would be deemed acceptable to God. We were without that kind of strength. So when we were without strength, that's when it was, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So in due time, what does it mean? It means that when it was sovereignly appointed by God, in his order of things, he sent his son into the world for the purpose of dying for ungodly people. Do I want you to circle that word, at least in your mind, where it says the ungodly. Because sometimes we think that, you know, Christ died to save the select worthy, that though they were incapable, you know, yet they needed it still. And so he had like a few that he wanted. And so he kind of saved them and were the residual leftovers. You know, it's, it's not that way. It says that he died for the ungodly. You ever read that scripture where uh, he had a wedding feast? You know, Jesus gave the parable, and he said there was a great wedding feast, and the master sent out, and he sent to all his friends, and his friends were too busy to come. This one had a field. This one had a, you know, a new wife, and none, no one wanted to come to the marriage, and he was upset, and so he said, all right, well, go out and, you know, tell you know, expand the invitation, like open it up to to the peasants, you know. And so the peasants, you know, came, some of them responded, but the servant came back and said, yeah, Lord, they're there, but there's still room. And he said, okay, fine. Go to the highways and the byways. Go to the crippled. Go to the maimed. Go to the lepers. Invite anyone so that my house is full. And so then, you know, the servant goes out and the whole thing. I've read that, you know, before, and I'm like, okay, thank you, Lord. because i am the leper lame maimed you know like third on the list way down at the bottom like okay i can't get i can't get who i want so all right you can come you know kind of no 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 what this is telling us is that who god had in mind when he sent his son into the world to die for sin was the ungodly meaning it was the last first that he was interested in It was the person who was the weakest, the person who was the least able, the person who had the least to bring. That was the one he had in mind when he sent his son, the ungodly. That is contrast. Godly means I'm like God. Ungodly means I'm as far from being like God as you can describe. And he says that's who Christ came to save. Why? For scarcely or sometimes... For a righteous man, one will die. Yet, perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. So, I mean, we understand that. You know, like, you know, if it's me or you, I mean, sorry, but, you know. But it's like the guy, the, the two guys that were camping and they were sitting there they were taking a rest by a stream. And all of a sudden they looked right across from them, and this big brown grizzly bear came out from around a tree. And the two friends just looked at each other and they looked at the bear and the one friend just slowly reached for his sneakers and he started very carefully putting his sneakers on. And his friend looked at him and he said, Are you crazy, bro? You can't outrun a grizzly bear. And the guy looked back and he said, I don't have to outrun the bear. I only have to outrun you. You know, and, and that's that's kind of our mentality in life, you know. It's like, well, yeah, you're a good man, I'm sorry, you know, I wish I could do more for you, but, you know, there's nothing I, you know, he says, well, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But in contrast to that, verse 8, here's God's reason, here's the motive. But God commends or demonstrates or reveals His love, unconditional, unearned, no strings attached, love, toward us. Notice that word us, it's a great big us, it's not you, Paul looking down on us and saying you, you sinners. No, it's us. In that, while we were yet sinners, when we were at our worst when there was absolutely nothing that we could bring to God, when we were in a tailspin of self-destruction because of what our iniquities and our sins led us into, when there was no hope at all that we could ever turn things around or make amends for the past or undo the deeds that we'd done or unspeak the words that we said, that it was when we were sinners that Christ died for us. He knew what we were he knew what he was getting and he did it anyway why because he loves us why because we'll serve him no it's not what it says why because we're going to be big givers someday because he's going to make great Oompa Loompas? because when we get into heaven we'll be so grateful that we'll you know wash his feet for it no no because he loved us Paul would write to the Ephesians and say that for the ages to come, that he might reveal his kindness and his love towards us through Christ Jesus. He loves us. He loves you. He loves me. Not because of anything that we are, or what we deserve, but because it's his very essence in nature. He is love. Christ died for us. That's the motive. That's why God did what he did. It's why he said in the beginning, let there be light, and there was light. It's why he formed a garden and put Adam in it. It's why after Adam and Eve sinned, he slew a lamb and he clothed them with their skins. It's why God raised up Abraham in a nation whereby he would bring his son into the world. It's why God constructed a law, which we'll get into as we cross into chapter 6. It's why God sent prophets and ultimately his son, who hung upon a cross. Everything that God has done, he's done because he loves us. Now much more than that, verse 9, being now justified by his blood... We shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, if we've been saved by his blood, the fact that he died, and forgiven of our sins, then we're going to be spared from the wrath that God will pour upon those that reject him and those that don't receive forgiveness of their sins. So to be saved through Jesus Christ is to be spared the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So if in our death he died and we were saved, then how much more will we not now be saved by the fact that he has risen again? And not only so, verse 11, in conclusion to this section... He says, but we also joy in God or rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. Another byproduct of this salvation is that there's joy that's been given to the life of the believer because we recognize the context of our lives now that we are saved and we've been atoned. We've been brought brought into reconciliation with God. Well, the next question that he asks or answers that he anticipates And this is a good one. Good question for the thinker. How can the death of one man pay the price for the sins of many men? It would seem as though, you know, even in the Old Testament, there was one lamb that was brought for every man on the Passover and at different times. So how could one man, Jesus, be satisfying to pay for the sins of whosoever will believe? It doesn't make sense. It almost, it, it's, it's unequivocal. So he answers the question. He says in verse 12, he says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all sin. Now, who is the one man whereby sin entered the world? That's right, Adam, okay? And by one man, Adam, in his sin, every single descendant of Adam was born in sin. And so you and I were born sinners, not because we sinned, but because we inherited a sinful nature from our distant forefather, Adam. Now, a sinful nature manifests itself in sinful behavior, right? Which is why, from a young age, no one has to teach us to sin. We're very good at it, right from birth. We come out of the womb selfish. <laughs> you know; It's our nature. So, by one man, sin came into the world, and death passed on all men, because all have sinned. For until the law, verse 13, there was a span of time between the creation of Adam and the giving of the law, right? A span of about 2,000 years. He says, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. In other words, if you're traveling down an unmarked highway and you get pulled over for doing 75 miles an hour where there is no posted speed limit, you cannot be cited for violating the speed limit because there is no speed limit. It's on posted territory. And so he carries that into the spiritual realm and he says, listen, if there is no law, then it's impossible for you to be charged for some specific sin because there's no law. It hasn't been established. However, he says, verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that is to come. In other words, even though the law of Moses had not yet been given, people still died. And that death was the sign that sin was present in the human race. It said that they're born, and and notice what it says at the end of verse 14. It says that Adam is a figure. See that word? He's a figure of him that was to come. What does that mean, that he was a figure? It means that he was a picture, or a parable, or we would call it a type, of something that was coming yet after. Who? Jesus. Right. Jesus is called the last Adam, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So what's the relationship between Adam and Jesus? He explains. Sinless. What? Adam was, uh, sinless when he was born. Right? Sinless as is Jesus. Right. But there's, but there's more. Because look what he says. Verse 15. He says, and, and, and what I wrote over this little section to help me understand it, I wrote contrasting similarity. Because he's going to say not as, so is, not as, so. There's a contrasting similarity here. And here, it follow it. He says, but not as the offense, that's Adam's sin, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, that is Adam's sin, his offense, many be dead, much more The grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. In other words, Adam, one man, sinned, and all of his descendants paid the price for that sin. They all fell under the banner of his sinfulness, even though they hadn't sinned the way Adam sinned. So also Christ, he was righteous, one man. And because of his righteousness, now all that come under him are declared righteous, just as all were declared sinners in Adam. It's a contrasting similarity. One man's deed resulted in several people's consequence, whether it be bad under Adam or good under Christ. And not as it was by the one that sinned, so is the free gift. For the judgment was by one, that's Adam's sin, to condemnation, but the free gift, that's Jesus and the cross, is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense, that's Adam's sin, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ, Therefore, here's the conclusion, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, that's Jesus and his perfection, the the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. <clears throat> so, those that are born after Adam are born into sin. And those that are born again in Christ are made righteous through what he accomplished on the cross. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the answer to the question of how can one man's sacrifice include so many, there's the answer, that just as it was with Adam, so is it also with Christ. When we give our lives to his sacrifice and we say, Lord Jesus, come into my life, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I receive the gift of your salvation and I want to be born into you. I want to be in you. At that point, his righteousness is transferred upon us no matter how many it is. He calls individuals and so thus we can then be born again. Um, We're supposed to get through chapter (laughs) 6. But if I do that, and I could do that, I'm going to cheapen it and water it down and I don't want to do that. Um, I promised you in an email that we were going to talk about victory over sin. And it's coming in chapter six. So please read ahead because it's gold. It's pure gold in terms of the practical righteousness. Okay? What we've talked about thus far, okay, with Jesus, the cross, and salvation is something that we call positional righteousness, meaning that God has taken us. And he has declared us righteous. He's given us innocence. But there's an elephant in the room. I'm a sinner, right? I do wrong things. I still have problems. So though God sees me as righteous, what about my behavior that I'm having so much trouble with and the struggle that's going on inside? That's called practical righteousness. The reality of who I am. That's where we're going. Because that's the big elephant in everybody's mind right now. It's like, okay, I get it. I'm declared righteous through Christ. But what about my sin struggle in this flesh? How do I deal with it? What do I do with it? Chapters 6 and 7 and then into 8, we're going to talk about it. And it's this is the gold, guys. When we talk about being disciples of Christ, when we talk about changing, when we talk about God working in us and removing filth and inserting light in life this is where it's at the things that paul's about to get into here this is where the rubber meets the road this is the difference between a professor and someone who walks in it and it's important good stuff coming up so we'll get into <laughs> we'll get into that next week